Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda House, the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I'm filling in today for Kim Tebaldo, our President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. As many of you know, the Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of care support in the United States and around the world. Currently, our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and by a telephone helpline, and that number is 1-888-793-9355. I'm so pleased today to be joined by a good friend of mine and longtime colleague, Byron Litton, who is the Senior Director for Global Brand Strategy for Lilly Oncology, Eli Lilly and Company. And today we're going to be talking about innovative, comprehensive cancer care. You know, when you learn that you or a loved one has cancer, your thoughts likely move towards seeking out the best possible treatment. Our show this afternoon is going to focus on ways in which you can do that. In particular, we're going to focus on innovative cancer care, patient access to comprehensive quality cancer care as a part of that journey and knowledge seeking. We really want you to be informed about some of the issues that occur behind the scenes as many are working to bring all types of cancer care from the bench to the bedside. I'm very excited to have Byron with me today, and I know he's going to be able to provide our listeners with information that you need to know about this journey. In particular, today we're going to break the show into four different topics. Number one, we're going to explore the meaning, the process, and the cost of innovation and providing innovation to the patient. We will talk about how to, how to ensure that patients have access to quality cancer care. So if you have innovation, how do you gain access to that quality cancer care? We will explore ways in which the patient's voice can be amplified throughout this process. And as you know, that's incredibly important to the cancer support community. And finally, we will tackle a few of the myths related to cancer care. I need to let you know that we are very thankful for today's sponsors. Today, the show is sponsored in part by Lilly Oncology, along with ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. So with that, let's get started. And again, today we're joined by Byron Linton, who is the Global Brand and Strategy Senior Director for Lilly Oncology, Eli Lilly and Company. Thank you for joining us today, Byron. Linda, I'm glad to join you. I look forward to the discussion today. Thank you so much. How about 
if we start by giving our listeners a little background around, around the idea of innovative cancer care, but in particular, I know that Lilly Oncology has a project called PACE, which stands for Patient Access to Cancer Care Excellence. So could you just start off by anchoring us in, in PACE? Yeah, so that's a, a question that I, I love to answer, and I think we'll get a chance to talk about, just as you said, innovation and how we bring uh, new drugs to the marketplace. And uh, this PACE initiative, or Patient Access to Cancer Care Excellence, for Lilly's oncology group was really some awareness that we have been uh, an innovator. We've been in the space of developing and manufacturing treatments for patients across a large therapeutic realm, but in, in oncology specifically over the last four decades. And for us, PACE is an effort uh, to really become more engaged in the environment, uh, environment around us to ensure that um, on issues that would have regulatory or policy or legislative implications for issues that affected patients, we understood that we wanted to get more involved, that we had a, a great deal at stake on those issues. So on issues of drug development, the speed of drug development, and making sure that patients get access to new innovations that are coming forward in the marketplace today, which we're all very, very excited about and we should be, um, that we have a, a voice in that, and we start to play our rightful role, an appropriate role, but a rightful role nonetheless in those environmental issues as they emerge. So th that's what PACE is for us. It's our effort to get involved uh, in the environment as it's changing so quickly and have an effect and have a say as we see regulatory reform on the clinical trial side or payment reform in the way that we pay for drugs moving forward in the oncology space, and uh, I'm excited to be part of that endeavor at Lilly. Well, thank you, and congratulations for taking on on such an effort. It is an effort that, that really cross-cuts the overall cancer experience. It's, it's, it's really outside of, of Lilly and, and addresses issues that are critically important to, to, to people who are touched by cancer. You know, one of, the, uh, one of the topics that I know that you're interested in and you mentioned is innovation. So can you start by talking to the audience a little bit about what you mean when you use the term innovation? Yeah, that's a good question. So it probably means something a little bit different uh, depending on the seat that you sit in and your role in the cancer community. So certainly we've seen innovation uh, in all forms of treatment in and around cancer, whether that be surgical or radiation treatment that's used to treat patients uh, or drug development. So from my seat, I look at that from drug development, but some of the commentary and innovation is really applicable irrespective of the modality or the technique that's used to treat cancer patients. So when I think of innovation, I think first of uh, really personalized medicine. And we hear this term a lot. It's a term that you'll hear at the 6 o'clock news when there's an update in and around cancer treatment, that it's more personalized or more tailored. And so I wanted to maybe give a little bit of an insight as to around what that means as it relates to uh, drug innovation. And we are quickly, the scientists and the researchers in the space are really quickly understanding when cancer is attributed to an error in our DNA, uh, they're quickly unlocking or decoding what those abnormalities are 
within the DNA, and it's helping to unlock what the secrets to remedying those abnormalities are. That Those techniques and uh, that level of science hadn't existed even just a few years ago. So um, understanding of the DNA is one way that we have a little bit better understanding of the individual makeup of a person's cancer. Uh, we are able to go look like we never have before what we call biomarkers. And uh, they may be a specific uh, signal or an attribute or characteristic of, again, an individual's disease of their cancer that's just a little bit different. And so when we understand that, we're able to become more sophisticated in shutting down or prohibiting those abnormalities in the cancer cells. Uh, and that's opposed to what has traditionally happened in oncology where we had simply introduced a cell-killing agent that would stop rapidly producing cells, which cancer cells are. So it allows us to be able to tailor the therapy to be more specific to the patient. And in many instances, because we're smarter in attacking the abnormality where it occurs at the cellular level, uh, in many cases, it brings less toxicity for, for patients as well. Uh, we're also unlocking keys on the immunotherapy side, which is using the body's own defense mechanisms to, to fight the disease that they've developed. All of these things are leading us to understand on almost a daily and weekly and monthly basis more about this disease and more at an individual level. So when you hear the term personalized medicine or tailored therapy, to me that means innovation, and that's a little bit of the backdrop in what it means. I think what it means for patients is that we're, we're just on the cusp of being able to deliver an innovation like we have in other disease states. And I think a great example, from 1950 to 2010, the mortality rate due to stroke decreased by some 78%. So we made incredible uh, advances. While it's still a great challenge for us from a health community, we made significant advances in that space. In the oncology space over the last 20 years, we've decreased the mortality rate by 20%. So we've made advances, and but we have really what we think uh, just on the precipice of being able to make advances that would match or mirror these advances and mortality rates that we've seen with, uh, with other uh, disease states. It's an exciting time for us, and it, and it is a time where the term innovation uh, is truly appropriate. So what is the process, and how long does it take to bring an innovative solution from you know, through the research process and into the patient. Yeah, that that process is really the point of a lot of uh, a lot of discussion. So let's talk a little bit around what that looks like, and I'll, I'll give my best nickel tour of what drug development looks like uh, from our side of the fence. Uh, it, it's really an amazing and a long journey. Um, scientists will begin literally with thousands of molecules. And then just for some, uh, a little bit of uh, an essence of the cascade of what happens from that point, only about 250 of those molecules from maybe as many as 5,000 that uh, we're additionally, uh, initially rather analyzing uh, have enough promise or have enough signal of promise to be tested in the laboratory or in animals. Then from those 250 beyond the lab or animals, about 10 will actually go into human testing. 
And on average, less than one of those 10 drugs will actually make it into a clinical practice and be deemed a medicine that we would use in any therapeutic area, and specifically for us in oncology. Um, So sometimes patients will hear uh, about clinical trials, and they'll hear some language around the phase of clinical trials. And it's really quite easy to to dress up a little bit of language around an understanding of this. Um, As those molecules come out of the laboratory and go into what we call phase one testing, they're typically pretty small uh, in size. Sometimes a phase one trial will be as few as um, uh, somewhere in the teens in the number of patients. Oftentimes, you're trying to get an early signal of safety or activity, and oftentimes uh, in a phase one trial, a molecule or a drug will be used across a number of different tumor types. Uh, The next phase, and a really uh, important uh, phase, is a phase two trial. And at that point in time, you'll see the size of the patients that are introduced to the molecule increased in oncology, and it's not uh, uncommon for that to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 patients. We'll see the drug, and it's usually in a specific tumor type. And from a phase two trial, or maybe multiple phase two trials, uh, drug developers will then move into a phase three trial. And a phase three trial is a, a trial that's on a larger scale, Uh, That number can vary depending on the tumor type, but oftentimes in a phase three capacity, a drug will be compared to to, uh, a treatment that's considered to be a standard of care in that particular disease type. And oftentimes, the intent of a phase three is to take that data forward to the FDA for approval so that we can see widespread use. Um, So the, uh, the process that I just described can oftentimes take 10 years. Uh, which is unfortunate. It's a process that we need to move quicker to be able to get answer for patients. It's some of the work, as I described, in our PACE initiative that we're about, uh, and it's important work for us to improve upon. Uh, And when you splice in the discussion that we just had around personalized medicine, trying to identify which molecule is best for an individual patient, and this long process, you can get an idea of the complexity and the time and likely the expense that's associated with drug development. So there, there is a nickel tour of drug development from my seat. Yeah, that's really helpful. And just to touch on something that I didn't hear you mention until just your last comment is the cost of that drug development process. So on average, what does it take to bring a molecule to, to market? Yeah, it's a surprising number. Um, as part of the work that we've done to better understand patients' understanding of, of drug development, we went out in a large survey and asked folks, how much does it cost to develop a drug? Uh, more than 50% of the folks who responded in this uh, large, uh, large survey of over 4,000 people, their guess was between $10 million and $100 million which unfortunately is a guess at between 1% and 10% of actual cost. Uh, As we embark to develop a drug, um, the expense to bring that drug to market is currently a billion dollars or more. Uh, In fact, Forbes had an article out earlier this year um, that uh, shared that the, if you take a look at the total roll-up of 
failures um, and those drugs that don't make it to market, but certainly induce cost for the industry. Uh, the industry spends $5 billion on average for every drug that makes it to the market. Uh, so that's what, we, what we're looking at when we consider if we're able to bring a new drug to a particular uh, patient within a tumor type, a particular stage or line of therapy within a tumor is that it's exceedingly long and can be very, very expensive for us to be able to bring a drug to market. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, we, we've got just a couple of minutes before we, we go to a commercial break, and I, I think you raise a good point that, you know, what I, what I think I heard you say is that it's a billion dollars or more to bring a drug to market, but that doesn't really factor in the drugs that, that don't make it to market. And, and there, are, there is value in the learning of drug failures. I mean, it allows us to advance, to advance the science to have, again, more meaningful products in personalized medicine and, and biomarkers and additional innovations. And, and what I hear that $5 billion figure, um, I'm, I'm assuming, includes the cost of those failures as well. That's, that's exactly. We want to be clear in that. And I won't mention the specific drug name because it's not important in the context of this discussion. But at Lilly, we had been in development of a drug that, that we were excited about. We were uh, committed to uh, being persistent in development. We were at the development of that drug for a decade. And just within the last couple of months, the uh, data came back from our phase three effort, and that data was not positive. It, it wasn't effective as we believed it would be, and it wasn't effective as effective as, uh, or more effective rather than what's commonly available in that particular disease state. So there were scientists and physicians who worked on that drug for a decade, and those are all sunk costs. So yes, that $5 billion does represent sunk cost. And Linda, you're right. That's uh, that, that was a that was a sad day around the halls for us as we realized that we weren't going to be able to do something for patients in that tumor type, which we think about a lot. Uh, and it was sad for those folks who dedicated so much of their life to making a difference in that tumor type. But it's not all at a loss. We do learn things along the way. We become uh, smarter around a particular type of um, uh, disease and a molecule's applicability to that. And so um, we do learn from our failures, and that's, um, for good or bad, one of the ways that we're actually ultimately able to bring more innovation to the space. Sometimes we need luck, and then sometimes we, we do need the learnings from the failures that we have along the way. Sure, sure. And we are going to move to a commercial break, but as we move into segment two and three of today's show, I do want to get into a little bit of, um, you know, are there, is there anything we can do to make this process move faster? Is there anything that the patient or the family uh, families could do to, to help along this process? So we'll, I'll encourage our listeners to stay tuned for when we come back, and we'll tackle those tough topics on, in the next couple of segments. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be right back with more of this great information right after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. 
Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Speaking about cancer, today's show is sponsored in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I'm lucky enough to stand in for our CEO and President, Kim Tebaldo. Today, I am joined by Byron Linton, who is the Senior Director of Global Brand and Strategy for Lilly Oncology for Eli Lilly and Company. Welcome back to the show to our listeners, and Byron, welcome back to you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Prior to the break, we had a fairly robust discussion about the process of innovation. We we defined essentially what innovation looks like, what the process is. You know, we sort of landed on the cost of innovation and the value of both drugs that make it to market, the learnings from drugs that don't make it to market. But you know, you quoted about a five billion dollar price tag on average for um, every drug that comes to the market. And you know, we've we've read and and heard about um, patient access challenges, especially around the cost of their care. So I wanted to address a little bit of that. I know that, that the industry broadly and the nonprofit community, we, we work really hard to make sure that, that patients have access. But I think as a, as a starting point, you know, when we talk about access, are we talking about patients being able to afford their treatment, patients being able to get their, doc, their treatment from their doctor? And, I, and when I think about that, I think about, you know, potentially even the drug shortage, um, the drug shortage issues or or coverage in their, their health care policies, or are we talking about something uh, completely separate? Yeah, so I, I have an opportunity to take a lot of my day and think about uh, access and what it means and uh, the details up under that. And I think all of the things that you described really do relate to 
pieces or elements that could infringe upon access or the, the patient's ability to, in an unabated way, um, get a treatment that's due them or the new technologies, the new innovation that's, that's to them. And I, in, in our cancer space, this is a little bit of a moving target. I just have a couple of perspectives. I think that, first of all, from the perspective of access, uh, can uh, the patient receive the drug? Is it made available to them from their oncologist? Uh, traditionally, we've seen really little in regard to limitations and access to um, oncology agents, to, to cancer agents. Uh, and that's been for a few reasons. Um, because of the gravity of the disease, the seriousness, seriousness of the disease, and uh, also the complexity of treating cancer, that it had been really taboo to place cost containment or restrict access uh, from uh, an insurance payer or from a hospital. Um, and we are seeing that change. And the reasons we're seeing that change are very practical. Uh, the baby boomers are every day increasingly moving past the age of 65, and really an age which we see a lot of incidence and prevalence of cancer. So we have this really emerging population of folks that are unfortunately are right in those me- median mean years of having cancer. And then we are seeing the cost of cancer rise. Uh, and so those two things come together, and as a society, we realize that we do have to take measures to make sure that we get the best appropriate care in a cost-effective manner. Uh, So uh, access uh, has that definition now in oncology where it really hadn't. And we had seen this in other disease states uh, where you would see some innovation or some technologies preferred over another for cost cost savings uh, intent. And so we see that. That's much of the work that I'm engaged in to make sure that when we bring new molecules to the marketplace, they're available for uh, a prescriber and oncologist to be able to uh, give to patients in that space. So we worry about that. We think about that. I also think a lot about access in uh, another light, and that's simply access on the back of the patient's ability to pay for their medication. And, uh, again, as the cost of cancer care increases, uh, a 20% copay uh, burden for a patient is often quite limiting. And so uh, I think of access all also in this way is what is the individual's ability uh, with their means to be able to pay for the cancer care that they can receive. And that's also something that we're engaging in. And so I think uh, for uh, the terminology of access in cancer care, it's not one single thing that may prohibit a patient from getting what ultimately would be best for them, but it's multifaceted. And so we're about that. Organizations like Cancer Support Community are about that, and making, we stand, making sure we stand up and represent the voice of the patient, that we do the right thing as, a, uh, as our social responsibility in this space. So access is one that is increasingly important for our cancer patients. Well, and I want to just, um, I'm going to put a plug in for a couple of resources for patients. I'm not going to do it now. I just want to give our listeners a heads up that before we go to the next commercial break, I'm going to give you a website address and also a telephone number to help 
patients and families gain access to innovative cancer treatments. So I just want to give you a warning to grab a pencil and a piece of paper for um, some information at the at the end of this particular segment. So thank you for allowing me to, to interject that, Byron. Um, so, so in terms of the current challenges related to access, I heard you talk about patients' ability to pay for innovation, and there are more more patient, more people with cancer, and, and I've often, I've often noted that the average age of a cancer diagnosis is 67, which also happens to be the lead edge of the baby boomers. Um, so we're going to be seeing this groundswell. So as you noted, there will be more people with cancer, and um, it'll inevitably drive drive the, the, the cost up. Are there any additional challenges that you see specifically related to access? Yeah, I, I think there are a number of uh, you know there are a number of things that um, uh, that concern us, or we want to be vigilant in, our, in and around. And I think it's worth as we're in these early weeks of the Affordable Care Act. I think we may be in a place in the United States where we see more universal health care, and I think for many that will bring benefits that um, that we should all be excited about. I do have uh, a tinge of concern around what that practically means for access to patients who are opting into these health exchanges or these marketplaces. As I take a look at the uh, early numbers as they as they come out, uh, for some of the lower-tiered plans, for a silver plan or for a bronze plan, I'm concerned that some of the patients that would opt into those will have a sense of security that they do have health insurance, many of them for the first time in years or for the first time period. Um, But um, up under that, we need to have a good level of understanding of what that practically means for essential care that's delivered within oncology. And I'm concerned as we have a real need for cost containment that we're going to see variability from state to state and from health exchange to health exchange and what that really means for cancer patients. I was taking a look at a couple of states uh, recently in a silver level plan and what that real cost might look like if you were to enter into cancer care. It looks to me as if uh, care in that space in regard to out-of-pocket or copay could be exceptionally high. Uh, and I have a concern for patients of what, around what that practically means. That extends to us in the industry um, because we have means and we uh, set aside funds to be able to help patients who are low-income, uh, up to five times the poverty level, in being able to replace drug. Uh, it's something that we're quite proud of. It's part of our social responsibility to help patients who should get drugged but don't have the financial means. And we also support national foundations um, who set aside money to help specifically with this 20% of copay. Our ability to help patients who entered into the health exchanges is still not completely clear as to whether the government will deem those um, uh, uh, government-covered patients, in which we have uh, less latitude to help in the ways that I just described, or whether they will be considered private patients. And if that's the case, then we will have an ability. Um, there'll be an increased demand 
on dollars to support in that space, but we would have an ability to help. So I think, one, I'm concerned around what the health exchanges really mean for cancer care because the devil is in the detail, and we'll understand more surely. And then, two, I'm concerned a little about the ambiguity and the role that we can play, that industry can play, in being able to rightfully help patients in that space. So that's another example of, uh, of a concern that we have is we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing around access for patients. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to, we've got about four minutes until break, and so I, I, wanted, I want to take... I want to take your comments and just wrap a little context around it because if somebody is listening to this, you know, three months from, you know, the air date or the time that we're taping this, I just want to make sure that that, that they are aware that we are talk, we're, we're taping the show at a time when the Affordable Care Act is being implemented, so October of 2013. And a part of that implementation is the ability for patients who are not covered under either Medicare or an employer-based plan or Medicaid to purchase health care coverage on the independent state exchange marketplaces. And we share your concern, Byron, that we want, we being CSC, that we want to make sure that there, there are essential health benefits that are in play for a patient who would purchase any of these plans. And I think that, that the government is as well, which is why they, they have created a category called the essential health benefits. Um, we share your concern that those essential health benefits may roll out differently according to which plan a patient might choose. And we also share your concern that the plans might be costly um, or that there might be, there might be co-pays. We are encouraged, however, by the fact that there are caps in place for both individuals and families, um, such that that that, that patients will know what their what their maximum uh, maximum out of pockets would be. Um, so we are we are encouraged by that. Um, I would like to mention that cancer support community worked with 19 other cancer advocacy organizations to create a tool to help patients navigate through exactly the challenges that you've outlined. So for those of you who were able to grab a pen and a piece of paper, I'd like for you to write this down. It is called the Cancer Insurance Checklist. The website is www.cancerinsurancechecklist.org. If you go to that website, you'll be able to download a resource. It's four pages. It helps you outline your personal situation. It goes through each of the essential health benefits, and it gives you then the opportunity to compare potential plans against those essential health benefits so that at the end you would be you know you would be able to make a decision based on your budget scenario your health status and what you feel like you'll need regarding your your essential cancer care so again that's www.cancerinsurancechecklist.org and we you know we'd like to thank um, our our sponsors in allowing us to provide that service to, to patients so, Byron, I'm, we've got exactly one minute till break. When we come back, I'd like to talk about or pick up on the comment that you made about um, amplifying the patient voice and the patient playing a role um, in this. So um, I appreciate your comments uh, to date. I want to give you the last 45 seconds if there's anything else that you would like to add, particularly around this access, this access issue before we do move into what our yeah. listeners can do. Yeah, here's... Here's a very briefly, here's a short tidbit on right now what's taking place as it relates to patients' ability to pay or the finances or the access piece. This year, Duke University released data that said that uh, 57% of patients would have liked to have had 
a financial conversation with their oncologist or practice. But that conversation only took place with 19% of patients. So mm-hmm. both of those numbers are skewed. The rate of this discussion in and around access and finances should be high, and there should be very little difference between a patient's want and that conversation actually taking place. So patients should play an active role in this part, just as it relates to finance and access. We've got room to grow and room to be more on this, and patients can play a large role in making sure that that happens in their own personal uh, walk with cancer. Great. That's a great segue to to the next section. Um, This is, frankly speaking, about cancer. We need to take another commercial break, but we will be back with, again, great information for for you as we move into this uncertainty of, of healthcare reform in the next several months. We'll be back in just a moment with Byron Litton from Lilly Oncology. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, 
Millennium, and Purdue Pharma. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, sitting in today for Kim Thibodeau, our President and CEO. I'm joined today by Byron Linton, who is the Senior Director for Global Brand and Strategy for Lilly Oncology with Eli Lilly and Company. And we're talking about a number of issues related to innovative care, including access. And now we would like to move into the role that the patient can play. So how do we ensure that the, the patient voice is, is brought to the table? And Byron, as you know, the cancer support community was founded on the principle of patient empowerment and the patient taking an active role in his or her, her care. When you talk about amplifying the patient voice or engaging the patient in this process of innovation and access, what does that really mean to you? Yeah, well, Linda, I think, uh, first of all, I'd want to say this is one of the things that I learned from you as we have, have had a chance to work together over the years. Um, you exemplify this, and certainly the cancer support community does, and it's a, it's a real commonality that I think our two organizations share. So I, I think, one, I think the time when we have an uninformed patient population and cancer is largely diminishing. I think our access to technology uh, if you have a loved one with cancer and you have intensity in a short period of time, you can become much more informed and your voice should, should be heard in those decisions. In fact, I think that as we do see more cost containment, more trade-off decisions made in how care is delivered for cancer in the United States, the patients are going to be asked to make those trade-off decisions and they should be more informed and, the, and their voice will certainly be heard at a greater level. So I wanted to share just a couple of examples of what we do to try to get better at this uh, as part of our daily walk in bringing uh, molecules and uh, medicines to cancer patients. Uh, one of the things that we've done is that um, we've just moved to change our structure in my group so that we have someone fully dedicated to bringing patient insights back into our early drug development process. Uh, so we've done this over the years. Um, and I think having someone solely dedicated to just that gives us an example to do that in even a larger scale. And as we've done this over the last year or so, we've found that there is um, um, significant uh, instances where we can incorporate those findings or feedback uh, and actually how we develop a drug, going back to our early conversations, as early as phase one and phase two development, so that we're something different for patients, incorporating the real needs that they have. Um, I'll give an example. Uh, also, we're in our planning season, as many companies are, in determining what we're going to do in the upcoming year. That uh, process in the past was called brand plan. Uh, it was pretty self-centered. It was around the brand or the molecule. What were the opportunities, threats, weaknesses in and around that particular molecule? Again, a little bit more of a self-centered process. And over the past couple of years, what I'd want patients to understand is we've changed the vernacular in and around that entire process, and it's called customer counsel. Um, so it'd be easy enough to say, well, that's you know, some corporate speak or some change in jargon, but the underlying piece under, the, under that is that when we are now determining what we want to do in the upcoming year, we start with what we call moments of truth. There are moments like the moment that you hear that you have cancer, uh, the moment when you get the results of that first scan in your in treatment, 
or a moment, unfortunately, when you may hear that you've relapsed and you need to make decisions around what's going to be next for you. So we try to do our best from a physician perspective and from a patient perspective to understand those moments of truth and then determine where we can appropriately, but where we can play a role in making a difference in those significant moments of truth. And so we flip things on its ear. We're probably still early in that. We're maybe a little bit awkward in how we do that. But I think those are a couple of examples of us changing our ways of traditionally approaching what we do for patients. And, and quite personally, I'm, I'm proud of that. I think patients would appreciate that. I think they would appreciate the conversations that they hear inside the walls of Lilia as just one drug developer as it relates to um, cancer patient sentiment, their voice. Mm-hmm. So is there a way that our listeners could be more involved in providing feedback to you? As you go through this process, yeah, I think there's a. I think there are a couple of ways. I think we do seek that input from patients. We do that a lot through organizations like Cancer Support Community. Um, we have an opportunity to both get um, insights and touch points uh, with uh, folks like you, Linda, who are day in and day out working with patients um, and an advocacy and a professional services organization. So having a patient having that connection with an organization like Cancer Support Community is a conduit for us a better understanding what we need to be. Uh, more directly, and we'd welcome this, I mentioned this PACE initiative that we have underway. We do have a website. It's pacenetwork.com. And if you take a look at that, it gives some insights as to the work that we're trying to do to be more, to be more for the community of patients that we love, that we love to serve. Uh, and if you scroll down to the bottom, there is a section where you can contact us. And I'd be more than open to seeing and hearing from patients about the work that we're doing and where we can improve and those needs. So I think either of those two places are touch points where we get a chance to get and be better and understand more. Great. Well, and I'd like to also, and I'm going to repeat the name of, of your website in just a second, um, I'd like to also raise the the resource that we have, which is called the Cancer Experience Registry. And, you know, we have now upwards of 5,000 individuals in the Cancer Experience Registry with a target of reaching 10,000 by, by 2014. And that is a process where patients can register to share their experience from start to finish uh, of, throughout their cancer journey. So we have patients who have, who have just recently been diagnosed in the registry. We've got patients who are five years out in the registry, but it really gives people the opportunity to share what it was like to receive that diagnosis, what resources do they wish they have, to, to the point of the earlier segment, what were some of the financial challenges that they faced as they were trying to make treatment decisions. Um, and then we publish all of that broadly. I know that we've shared, we, we've shared um, information with ASCO. We've shared information with N, uh, NCCN. We've actually shared information around lung cancer with the FDA as they were seeking out the, uh, the the, the patient voice in, in ways in which they make drug decisions or drug approval decisions. So for those of you who who are living with cancer, who have served, are surviving cancer or, or who know someone with cancer, I would encourage you to have them go to www.cancerexperienceregistry.org and lend your voice to, to, to that conversation. And then, Byron, while, while people have their pen out, could you just please repeat the name of, of your website and the opportunity to give feedback? Yes, it's Pace Network, P-A-C-E, network.com. 
great. Thank you so much. We are going to move to our final commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be back shortly to talk about some of the myths of cancer care. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back after this short break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. speaking about cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by McKesson's Giving Comfort Program, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Morphotech. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs for the Cancer Support Community, and I'm lucky to fill in today for Kim Tebaldo, our President and CEO. We're finishing up our show today by talking about myths of cancer care. Um, we've had an in- incredibly informative show today where we're talking about innovative care, we've talked about access, we've talked about the patient voice, and there are some myths that sort of stand out um, still after many, many, many years of trying to dispel the myths, and and we'd like to tackle a few of those today. I'm joined today by Byron Linton, who is the Senior Director for Global Brand Strategy for Lilly Oncology of Eli Lilly and Company. So welcome back to our listeners, and Byron, welcome back to you. And if we could start off by um, talking about the myths around cancer clinical trials. You know, in particular, one of the myths that exists today is that, um, and it's been a long-term myth, that somehow if you're on a cancer clinical trial, you receive less than optimal care. How how would you address that myth? Yeah, so I think the, the, the misperceptions around clinical trials, specifically clinical trials in cancer, run run deep. Um, and uh, as a result, and with for a few other reasons as well, only 2 to 3% of cancer patients in the United States go into clinical trial. And even when we run a clinical trial for a drug developer that's based in the United States, it's not uncommon for less than a third of those patients to actually come from the United States. Uh, many are uh, enrolled out of Europe or Asia or other countries. And so it's unfortunate. Um, and so I think there are a number of myths that contribute to that due in part to those low numbers. Uh, and so I think we can be clear in saying you, you are not receiving poor care when you're in clinical trial. Now, 
To answer that, though, you need to get at the essence of the question. And an investigator or a researcher is trying to get at ultimately the question of, is this new drug or this new combination of drug going to be better than what is commonly available for the patient? In some cases, Linda, there's, even uh, with as much as we've advanced, there's really no commonly accepted treatment in some more unusual cancers and then certainly some stages of disease or later lines of therapy for that cancer. Um, and ultimately, the, those researchers will get an answer that will either say yes, this treatment is better than what we had previously given broadly, or in some instances, there is a case that the answer is no, or that there's marginal differences that would not say that we'd bring this investigational drug to market. So that reality does exist. But the level of care that's provided, clinical trials by their nature are uh, an expensive investment, and they're run in reputable uh, institutions and reputable practices. The monitoring and the rigor uh, around watching a patient that's in clinical trial is very, very high. One thing I think it's worth addressing here is that there's a misnomer or a myth related to clinical trials in cancer that placebo may be used. And for those that don't know, placebo is an inactive drug that uh, can sometimes be used in, um, uh, in, in therapies as a comparator. Placebos in oncology are not used where there is an established standard of care. And I think that's important for uh, patients to understand as you're trying to come to grips with the, is a clinical trial a possibility for me and my family or not? So those are some of the, some of the challenges we would face. But I would comfortably say to any patient considering a clinical trial that you're not receiving poor care because you're opting into a clinical, uh, a clinical trial. Uh, and you're playing an important role, not only in your treatment uh, walk, but for the treatment walk for many patients that will come in the future. So I think it's, I think it's just really important to underscore your your key points of um, uh, of patients receiving good care in a clinical trial, and that in, in in the majority of the cases they're receiving at least standard of care, and in in some cases better than standard of care as a part True. of the clinical trial. True. Um, in the four minutes that we have left, I do want to address a couple of other things. Number, The first thing I want to address is the myth that there's a cure for cancer and that somehow the cure is being kept from patients. You touched on this a little bit with the idea, at least what I think the answer is, around personalized medicine. But is there a cure for cancer, and why isn't there? Yeah, so um, there is not, despite some of the information that you may see on the Internet. And the reason for that is is that... Um, as we as a country declared a war on cancer um, when, uh, at a time when I was very, very young, that was a little bit of a misnomer. But what we now know about cancer is that it is a thousand different diseases. And go back, it goes back to the first of this conversation that we're having is that cancer can be caused by a carcinogen in the environment, something that gets into your body, but it can also be caused in many instances because of your genetic makeup. That genetic abnormality that occurs in some of us uh, is terribly complex. And even within uh, a tumor type, right, breast cancer or a lung cancer, we're now understanding that those are many, many different diseases. And while we'll advance on those, and I think in some instances we can cure some of those thousands of disease or we can turn many of them into something that's very manageable and that we can live with, um, a, a cure 
uh, for cancer is a, uh, a, a little bit, even the phrase is incorrect to utter in that way because cancer is not one thing. Right, right. And, and, and unfortunately, cancer cells are very smart and they learn how to adapt, and adapt to their environment. You know, and continue to grow and, 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 and mutate, unfortunately. So we will, we will continue to, to unlock, the, unlock, the, unlock the doors that we have and, and advance the science moving forward. Um, we have just two minutes left in this show, Byron, and I wanted to just give you the last opportunity. So to think about if, if, if there was one thing that you would like to leave our listeners with from the conversation that we've had today um, as they are thinking about this show and, and thinking about their own experience with cancer or their loved one's journeys, um, what would you like to leave? What would you like to leave them with? Yeah, I think this is important. I, I think that I think, irrespective of your background, uh, as intimidating as the healthcare system can seem, or as daunting as the circumstances that you're facing may be, don't let that overwhelm your ability to have your questions answered. We talked about the statistics in and around understanding the finances of what being treated for cancer care means. Have that answer in hand. That question is a right question to answer. The same goes for clinical trials. You should know what your prognosis is, the specifics of your disease, if there is a trial that's available for you. There are gifted, gifted nurses and physicians that are around us to uh, support us who can and will answer those questions. So be empowered. Make that part of the empowerment of uh, what you can give yourself as you go through this journey with cancer, as many of us have. As Linda, you know, we have in, in my house. That was part of our empowerment to be able to have an answer to those questions. So I would encourage people to go get that. And I'd want people to understand that in addition to the folks that they see standing bedside, the nurses, the physicians, that there is a group of folks out here to de- developing drugs, researchers, scientists, who are thinking about them every day. And they should know that that uh, they should have that warmth and that hope around them as well. Great. Thank you. And Byron, I'd like to thank you on a very personal level for being here with us today. You and I have known each other for years, and you've just offered so much to, to, to this show, and I know that you have a, a personal interest and a passion for this. So thank you so much for being here um, and, and, sharing, and sharing all of this with, with our listeners. I thank you for the opportunity. Again, I'd like to thank Byron Litton, Senior Director for Lilly Oncology with Eli Lilly and Company, for being our guest on today's show. This is a very informative show about innovation, access, the patient voice, and tackling a few myths of, of cancer care. At the Cancer Support Community, we understand that ensuring excellence in cancer care is of the utmost importance. We know that today's radio show has provided you with useful information about utilizing innovative cancer care during your treatment, and we hope that it's given you information about ways in which you can become an empowered participant in the process. Thank you again for joining us. My name is Linda House, Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, filling in today for Kim Thibaldo, our President and CEO. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where you'll find resources, information. You can find a location near you, and you are more than welcome to call our telephone helpline. That number is 1-888-793-9355, where you can speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until the next time, be well, do well, live well. 
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support 